Hello, welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope that you leave this episode and every episode that you listen to loving the weather just that little bit more. Hi, I'm meteorologist and weather presenter Gemma. Hi, and I'm meteorologist and weather presenter Ashling. And tonight we are so pleased to welcome Dr. Lindsay Behrman to the podcast. Lindsay has a huge string of stuff after her name. She's a master's in marine aquaculture, where you looked at how deep water horizon oil spill. That was, I remember that. That was that was pretty epic. How it affected some of the reef species in the Gulf of Mexico. Then you went on to do a PhD to look at how human disturbance influenced the survival of wintering migratory waterfowl in the UK, of which by the end of this podcast, we're going to know exactly what that is. And is the topic that we're here tonight to talk about. So let's explore that with you. But you're first of all, you're very welcome to the podcast tonight, Lindsay. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's always nice to be able to share what I spent a lot of my life working on. So. Um, <laughs> we feel the same. That's great. Always welcome. And <laughs> um, we always start by asking our guests, where where was that first moment where you're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and study marine aquaculture. <laughs> what happened how did you get there oh gosh I, so this is always an interesting one because I literally grew up in a landlocked state nowhere near any ocean um so the fact that I ended up in marine sciences is is one of those stories that's a bit odd but um I think I credit it mostly to the fact that I spent a lot of time on the lake I always liked you know fish and wildlife generally we always had um lots of different pets at home. I grew up on a farm. So I think that just kind of intrigued me. And um, maybe it was Jaws, I don't know. <laughs> it was one of those sort of eras where, um, you know, I think there was a lot of David Attenborough on the TV and stuff. So I think I just got really intrigued by, you know, kind of the other side of things. So I, um, I just went on and studied it at uni and um, found myself doing an internship in the Bahamas and um, actually working as one of the field station managers for a bit. And then um, decided I wanted to make more of a career of it in terms of science studies. Um, so I went to do my master's. Yeah, kind of the rest is history. It just kind of <laughs> kind of built on itself, I suppose, more than actually being a light bulb moment. But I mean, I suppose it was a moment when I was in sixth grade and I declared to my mom I was going to be a zoologist um, because I had read Jane Goodall's autobiography. But um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I try and tell other people it doesn't necessarily always have to be, you know, one of those like lightning bolt moments. It can always just be something that's like really interesting. You just pursue it and it kind of comes out how it does. Oh, a little spark of joy as a young person thinking I like animals. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. How lovely. Yeah, yeah. I love the fact there was a film there involved in know, your love as well. Because mine started from the film Twister. That's where my love of the weather started. So I love the fact that you've got got a similar thing when you mentioned Jaws. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean lots of things. I, I think too, like The Lion King, obviously, that was one of those classic films that came out right when I was, you know, in kindergarten and and that kind of captivates you when you see the safari and stuff, so, you know, animals in general. Um, just interesting. <laughs> so you have moved on to become a twitcher. Yeah. Is this is this that... an okay term to use? <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. So this 
I didn't even know that the word Twitter existed until I started my PhD. So I felt very out of the loop. Um, but interestingly, um, you'll find that there are a fair amount of parallels between like fishery science and bird science. Because um, it's kind of like, I guess, the whole flocking, population abundance and stuff and tracking them and, and food resources and stuff. And the fact that, you know, fish and birds generally aren't as restricted by boundaries as a lot of other animals are. So I think those sort of factors coalesce into a very similar sort of science. Um, but yeah, I think what I realized when I was doing my my master's was that although I was really interested in the fish species, it was more the concept of understanding sort of human activities and sort of what anthropogenic impacts were having on animals. And so I, I decided that I wanted to sort of branch out and look at that as a bigger picture on other types of animals. And uh, subsequently happened to look for PhDs and found um, the one that I ended up doing being advertised um, just happened to be in the, the same town as my, where my husband was from. So that helped things along a little bit but um, <laughs> yeah it was it convenient was, uh, draw <laughs> yeah, yeah double, four years double draw but um yeah it was it's um I, I was really nervous about it being a, a really hard changeover but it ended up being um quite quite um a smooth transition in the end um i wouldn't say i know that every bird species in the uk by any means i i got talked to by a lot of twitchers when i was doing my my phd and they had asked me like oh did you see this in this bird and i was like oh i don't even know what that one is <laughs> yeah. i know my study species and the ones that are around it but so I, I had to do a lot of learning to get to know different species but um yeah it was it was still really good oh so you get capture capture interest mm -hmm. You managed yeah. to hang on and get through four years of that. I mean, that is a whole other. I mean, literally, I don't even know how many birds there are. I mean, it's insane, isn't it? The that whole wildlife. I mean, that I mean that alone, it's mind blowing. Which is why we're chatting tonight. So, tell us, do you think climate change is affecting birds in the UK? Oh, absolutely. I mean, everywhere. Um, there's. I was sitting down um, prior to this, trying to think of all the sort of the different factors and the, and there's there's so many different components that can potentially be influencing birds um but just specifically looking at um sort of my my more niche knowledge base which is the migratory waterfowl some of the things that we were seeing um and were being really actively studied at the time was um was a event called short stopping and essentially what happens with the migratory species at least the ones in the uk is they 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 winter in the warmer climates which um surprisingly is the uk <laughs> and uh, they summer in the really cold areas like uh northern <laughs> northern russia and um and so they are actually breeding up there and then they'll come down into the uk during the winter to to enjoy the more mild winters that are here but what we're seeing is with climate change you're having actually um warmer areas further north and to the east one of the aspects of migration is that you want to be as energy conservation conscious as possible when you're a bird and so what that translates to is that basically they don't need to fly as far to get into warmer climates um, so why waste the extra energy to go even further if you can stop earlier that's why it's called short stopping. What this sort of translates to is that you have birds that aren't flying as far 
into the same locations, which um, is really difficult as scientists, because if you're doing abundance studies on locations, it can look falsely like you're having a huge population drop in one area and a huge population increase in another area. <laughs> so if you're looking at um, something that would be coming further south, it would suddenly look like your sites that are further south have a lot fewer birds, and your sites further north have a lot more birds. That's because these birds aren't coming as far south. But that could be misinterpreted as being something, there's something wrong at this site maybe, and there's they're thinking that, oh God, there's a huge population decline. Is it because of this building complex or something? And it just turns out, they're not coming as far. Um, not always, obviously. Um, but the other implications that this has is not just um, management implied. It's the fact that sometimes you can get higher densities of populations in areas where there weren't before, and that depletes resources much more quickly. So you have essentially what would have normally been just arbitrarily, let's say we have a thousand meter range with a thousand birds. That's a lot of, you can spread out birds a lot more than if you condense them into a 300 meter range of the same number of birds. So those sorts of resources then uh, potentially can be impacting the survivability of those birds. Now, this is not to say that birds aren't adaptable. They can't fly then further if they find out that they are reduced on resources and stuff. So that can that can be mitigated a bit um, not only that is when you have temperature changes you also have food resource changes so uh, that supposedly you might have food resources that increase and in those no further north climates um, so that might mitigate for those issues as well but it's something to to take into consideration but in terms of you know the types of birds that potentially are the most impacted are going to be more of those sort of specialist feeders so with waterfowl they tend to be a little bit more just able to cope with changes because they can feed on sorts of crops they can feed on seagrass they can feed on algae um, and there's some that are more omnivores so they feed on insects and stuff so having the less specialist diet for a lot of those waterfowl means that they are able to cope with those changes a lot more. However, um, there's a handful of different ones that are very specialist feeders. So like they only feed on mud and they only feed with these types of worms that are a certain length. And if there's a climate variability that affects those, those aspects, either depletes a food resource that's in that region or um, eliminates it, then you're gonna have problems. That's that is being found in species, not my direct study, study species, but I think there's worries for puffins, for instance, like seabirds, because they're um, they're focused on um, an eel species that they're um, they specifically specialize on, and they're depleting with climate change, and um, with puffins being specialist feeding on those, they're really going to potentially be affected quite a lot. And so that's, those are sort of the big hitters in terms of, of what we need to worry about with sort of UK species. What is, um, you've mentioned the word specialist feeder. Mm. What is that? Are all yeah, birds in a so way then not I specialist think, feeders? Yeah, in, in sort of the context that I was um, applying it to, I was, I was thinking more with respect to a specific food resource. So um, if they specialize in a, a particular type of food, so let's say, like I said, with puffin, if they're, they're just uh, focusing on the eels, 
then if that food resource depletes, then what other food do they have? They don't really focus on that much else. Um, or uh, for instance, like godwits, they're quite known for being particular in terms of, of sand um, feeding and only only selecting for a certain size of, of mollusk or a worm. So those types of things can mean that they're, they're so particular in their food resource that they don't have any other options to choose from if that's gone. Whereas if something's more wide ranging and it has a lot of different options, if one resource depletes, then they can pick up that other resource that's out there. So birds won't waste energy if they don't have to. So you're saying that, yes, climate change is affecting birds. It can be hard to pull out exactly. It can be hard to misinterpret data on birds as well if you start seeing clusters of them turning up in different places. Mm -hmm. But overall, the answer is yes. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> I think that's I think that's always the tricky question with a lot of these things is is that the idea of, of having a, a flat answer to something like this is very hard to it's very hard to put it into sort of black and white it's definitely a whole range of gray because there's some species that will be absolutely fine there are some species that actually will benefit and then there's other species that will be hit very hard in the negative direction also, there are species that might be hit really hard, but have the capacity to um, have mitigation measures. So they might be able to genetically, through breeding, um, ultimately select for a type of body morphology or food resource that benefits them later on. So there is there is adaptability within there. Um, and I think we always have to, to make sure we account for that in sort of big changing events. Um, because we have to remember these animals are living in harsh environments all the time. They've been around for a long time. They have the capacity to to cope with change. It's just whether or not the extreme of change is too much. And so some species will really struggle and others might not as much. I think that's similar to weather as well, because we know that weather is causing droughts and flooding to become more frequent, intense and prolonged, or we're more likely to get intense rain. But when it comes to attributing things like wildfires to climate change, that's a lot harder because obviously there's other factors involved. But you can say that because you've got droughts, it's more likely that the ground will be dry and it's obviously hotter. So there's more likely that you're going to get wildfires or the burning season might be earlier or longer. So it's quite a similar thing than what you're saying there about the birds. Because of those those extreme weather events and the fact that you know, I think climate change is often viewed as this concept, uh, and obviously as a meteorologist, you know, I don't need to explain it to you necessarily, but it's the fact that it's not just warming, it's, it's yeah, the volatility of the environment, and that can mean a lot of different things for different species. Um, so in instances where they migrate very long routes and they're encountering higher volatility of the in, in sort of conditions that they're hitting along the way, that can have a lot of implications for you know, like if there's a really strong storm that they hit, you know, that might be more difficult for them to get to their breeding site. Um, just so many different factors sort of play into to how it affects different animals. What species are you aware of are in flux at the moment? So if you're saying it's very hard to attribute necessarily climate change to it, but what 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 change do you see? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of things are 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 based on at least in the bird science world, sort of abundant studies. 
Um, so the biggest factor is if there's an issue is whether or not there's declining or increasing abundances in different populations. Now, to pick out a specific species off the top of my head, um, I keep coming back to the buff, the puffins, but really the, uh, the interesting thing is with the puffins, their abundance studies only come at very large intervals and they haven't had one recently. So they don't actually know what their population numbers are. They just are predicting them to be um, quite low in the coming, um, coming surveys. At least with my my particular PhD bird species, uh, the brink geese and the widgeon, they were doing quite well. And I think a lot of that is down to the fact that they were um, non-specialist feeders. So I suppose if I wanted to generalize it a bit more is looking at those the species that are, are non-specialized are doing all right. The ones that are specialized are the ones that are predicted to really have uh, potential hits on their population numbers in the future. Just out of um, curiosity, in the time that you've started studying all of this, have you noticed any quicker than expected changes? Have you been surprised by anything that you've seen year on year versus what you would have had, you know, I guess read through all, of, you know, you'd be reading literature and papers and PhDs yeah. and about <clears throat> from other people. Like, have you, were you, have you been surprised by any changes? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, like with my species, I was, I was looking at more specifically sort of, um, sort of their population abundance numbers and what can be attributed to causing those variations. And I was kind of, I was looking more at sort of the, the reactions to human presence. But I think what I found to be really surprising because there's often this very sort of negative um, dialogue surrounding how humans are really, you know, killing all the birds and everything they're doing is is affecting them. And not to say that we're not having negative impacts in parts of the world. It's just that I think when that comes to mind, you're automatically thinking, oh gosh, I bet human activity is causing all sorts of problems with these birds. And I think in my research, I was most surprised by the fact that they were so resilient. What I was finding was that they could tolerate a very high degree of sort of disturbance and disruption before they really had any issues struggling. Now, again, that might have been that my study species were being non-specialists, were able to adapt quite well to circumstances. So I don't want to say that as a blanket response to every sort of species that's out there and that they're very adaptable. But I think that we what surprises me a lot of times is that we don't give animals enough credit for their ability to sort of mitigate for things. And I think that there is a lot of capacity uh, for them to, to sort of cope with change. Now, the issue is whether or not rapidness of change is too great for them to, to deal with. And I think that's often compounded by other factors, not just climate change, but pollution and, and habitat destruction. Yeah, that's a long-winded answer to your question, but um, sort of the idea that animals are, are more adaptable than we give them credit for, I think, is is what always consistently surprises me. Um, so I think that that would be really the, the core of what you're asking. The reality is they'll probably all be here long after we're gone. Exactly. So, yeah. I've said it, I say this a lot, is that I think oftentimes we are viewing the world with a perspective of thinking, oh, we're killing all these animals and stuff. What what really is happening is we're making the world unlivable for ourselves. 
and a lot of wildlife and animals and stuff are often very capable of adapting and they'll yeah like you said be here long after we're gone because we've ruined it for ourselves <laughs> not to be a downer I, <laughs> I do believe in hope I believe we can change our ways <laughs> that was actually going to be my next question actually it was going to be um along the lines of what do you think the future is? Because obviously you mentioned a few factors there that are impacting species around the world from sort of climate change to habitat loss. But so what do you think the future is? And the big one of the big questions is, do you have hope that we can make changes and we can change, um, we can make things better than they are? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, obviously, I think that's quite a loaded question. I, You know, where is the future? I think, you know, Ultimately, I think that's entirely up to the future, those the coming generations. And I think I do have a lot of hope. Um, my husband's a a teacher um, in oh gosh, I'm, I was going to say high school, but it's not high schooler, <laughs> secondary school. Is that right? He um, he's a teacher, and it's amazing how switched on they are environmentally. Um, I think the generations coming up are are really going to hold the key to sort of our future, and that does give me a lot of hope. Um, I do think that we'll we'll probably have a dip. I think, unfortunately, humanity sort of has a tendency to wait to the very very last minute till everything's dire and it's smacking us in the face before we make some real changes. But um, I think it's you know from the perspective of of a scientist, I think that it's, you have to have hope. I think uh, otherwise you just, you constantly see a lot of things that are, are kind of going downhill, but you also see a lot of amazing sort of innovations. And um, at the moment I'm, I'm doing grant writing for innovative projects and it's been really rewarding <laughs> because you see a lot of sort of um, movements in the right direction of sort of fixing fixing problems that are going on and I think it's nice to see that positive movement I suppose. So you mentioned there just about um, you feel like you've got some optimism about I guess the work that you're seeing around you and the kind of wider biodiversity of what what it is that you're working in so what are people doing what what can we do what could I do? I think that's always I'm um, a big question because I think that's where people get bogged down in sort of being depressed is feeling like it's such a big problem um how is how am I as one person gonna solve you know world hunger sort of thing um but I don't think that that's the way to look at it. I think the way to look at it is that what what is it that I can do that I know is going to make a difference in my day-to-day -day life um so I mean I know life is, is very hard when, especially now having a 10 month old, I'm very aware of the niceness of convenience <laughs> and how hard sometimes it is to constantly put everything in the recycle bin and in the compost bin and, you know, be reusable conscious and everything. But, you know, I think that that's obviously a big factor is, is sort of if being aware of, of not wasting stuff. But I think on a day-to-day -day basis, just every little thing that you can do, don't beat yourself up about the stuff that you can't do. And another one that I really like, and I don't know who told me it, but is, is that really your vote is your dollar and where you put your money is where things are geared towards. So 
you know, if you pay just a little bit extra for those things that are a little more maybe eco-conscious or just a little bit extra for the reusable item, then, you know, it pushes that market in that direction. And that's where things really start to change is, is unfortunately it's, it's money-based, uh, but it does make a difference. And so, yeah, you're voting with your dollar. And I think that's, that's always what I try and think. No, of it's really, it's really true. It's, it's really, you mentioned so many things there. You've just captured <laughs> just how hard life can be with kids, mm. especially when you're starting out with them or it's your first child. So you don't have anything in the, yeah. in the first place. Yeah. Um, and yeah, convenience is such a thing. We're all really busy. We're on this podcast tonight. We've all done a full day's work already. It's all about convenience. Yeah, and yeah, it is hard. But I, I, you know, I often have my mantra is always imagine everyone just made one better decision a day. Mm. And whether that was to not buy your coffee or walk back and get your coffee cup. <laughs> it's all about coffee for me. <laughs> or maybe just you know make do with something in your fridge and not buy it out mm. and if everybody did that that's a lot of good decisions in one day that's and in the UK that's about 64 million yeah better decisions if everyone just did one small thing or just made the extra effort to wash out your tub and you know put it into, into the yeah. thing but yeah lit, lit, we all need it. it needs to be everywhere doesn't it you you mentioned your vote and your dollar but also politics plays a huge role mm. what you choose to spend your money on is what you're choosing to invest in Mm-hmm. and it has to come from everywhere though doesn't it in all little yeah. tiny forward pushing steps yeah and I, I really really believe in yeah not getting too caught up in what you haven't done mm-hmm. right in the day. <laughs> I yeah. think he, it's too easy to sit there and say I mean it's, it's very like dieting in some respects it's you know like sometimes when you're like oh I'm really gonna eat healthy today and then you eat one cookie and you're like well sod it I'm gonna yeah. <laughs> eat loads of junk food well rather than doing that we'd just be like okay I'm gonna have my cookie I'm gonna enjoy it that doesn't mean that I can't do other good mm-hmm. things for my, yeah. my diet throughout the day and it's kind of like that with I think you know making conscious decisions is like okay well just because you've made one wrong decision or I, I won't, don't want to say wrong because I, I think that's the wrong sort of context of saying well that. I guess being mindful about making that decision yeah. and being like that's yeah. okay today yeah. And then I'm going to make 10 better ones after that. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I know. We know. We don't. We yeah. know what you mean. We do. It's also really important as well for us to use our voices mm-hmm. because, I mean, I've heard it so much recently as well. Nature doesn't have a voice. Yeah. So we need to use our voices for nature. We need to be the guardians of nature. And that, it, make, it makes me really angry when I see what hap- is happening to nature because nature didn't choose for this to happen to them. So we need to use our voices because nature doesn't have one so that's another big thing I think use your voice yeah. however you can I think I think that's really poignant and it's, it's brought up another thing that I had meant to mention um, was um, education and how important that is and sort of you know moving things in the right direction how influential it is um, because you can't protect what you don't know and you usually don't protect what you you know you don't have any feelings about so I think yeah, having an awareness and educating people about what the problems are so they can know that there is there is something to be done. And also just the idea of, of catering sort of a love for something. Um, like like we've already mentioned, what got me into science in the first place is, is sort of those videos, but also just being out in nature and around it. And I think it's really hard sometimes with with media and things to to get yourself off the computer. I mean, I work on a computer full time. 
Um, but just getting out in, in nature is proven to be good for your well-being, but also just for wanting to to love it and protect it. So if you if you don't know it, you can't you can't do that. So I think that's a very important aspect. Wise words, yeah, absolutely. So many like little nuggets in there resonate with mm-hmm. us and actually we've heard what you have just said from every single person on this podcast as in if you don't have feelings for it you're not going to want to look after it if you don't see it you can't believe it if you don't know what to support you need to educate yourself about it mm-hmm. it's the same it's like it's it's definitely a multi-pronged approach that actually seems to fit quite well across a lot of Mm. a lot of different topics and um, we also though need to make that information accessible to everybody because yeah. it's not accessible to everyone so a big no. another big problem is making all that information accessible so everyone has access to it is the beauty of the internet these days is yeah. it, it does offer a lot of platforms for people to sort of get information out there further yeah. but also a lot of misinformation unfortunately so you have to be wise about what you read and, and make sure you fact check, which is always yeah. hard. But education, education. For making uh, podcasts and, and sort of putting the, the front foot forward and making the effort to get mm, information I can, out I can hear the title already. It'll be Meet Our Twitcher, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Lindsay. I love it. Right. We're going to move on to the get to know me round. This is where we like to know a little bit more about our guests, apart from their passion and what they do. I like to know the other day-to-day stuff. Gemma, take it away. Okay, here goes. So there's some weather-related questions, and then there's some that are just very, very random. So we always start by asking our guests what their favourite season is. Oh, spring, 100%. Yay, Gemma, another winter <laughs> spring for me. Gemma loves autumn, I love spring. Oh. I am correct. <laughs> I just feel like spring has so much hope <laughs> for the year. I do, I do like aspects of autumn, but I always felt a little bit depressed as what follows autumn is really cold, rainy winter. Yeah, the bird song in, in spring is so beautiful. Oh gosh, yes, the mornings oh, I love. It's the only time in my life when I enjoy waking up at dawn. Hear, <laughs> <laughs> hear. If you had to choose, would you prefer to go to the beach or the mountains? Oh. My husband will throttle me if I say mountains because he loves the beach so much. But I think mountains, simply because I know this sounds awful because I'm I'm a marine biologist by nature. <laughs> well, I love hiking, and I feel like on the beach I do feel somewhat limited with what I can do. It's just play in the sand or swim around a bit, whereas I can hike. I can you know get around, do picnics, and also I mean I guess you can picnic at the beach, but I I am gonna say mountains for now you know i i would kind of i would i see that logic though because when you start a hike like if if, and you know if you're like me and like taking a picture of looking behind you the whole time when you go through them like the range of what you get through on a hike Mm. well even when you're experiencing it obviously not just in pictures but i'm saying when you're reflecting back afterwards um yes hikes are good yeah, I, I do say, oh God, it is a hard one because if there's a reef nearby, then you know we might have a little bit more of a contest. If I can snorkel around a reef, I might I might change my mind. <laughs> I guess it needs to be active. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned picnics on the beach, but I mean, you always end up with sand in your sandwiches, don't you? So, I'd always prefer to eat a sandwich on the top of a mountain, if I'm honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Oh, 
I know I've been, I know I've played games where I've said superpowers and I don't, you know, and now I'm going to completely contradict everything I just said. And it's going to be breathe underwater. <laughs> I mean, that's the, I, that's great superpower. That's great. Yeah. 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 Well, I used to dream I could breathe. Well, I still dream I can breathe underwater. I don't know why I used to. Oh, lovely. But, what a um, freeing dream. Yeah, yeah. I mean, have flying dreams too. I think that would be my second. If I couldn't breathe underwater, I'd like to fly. Uh, I suppose she was just very poignant with my study species. There is one of the animals I study. That's what it is. <laughs> They're lovely, positive dreams, though. They're lovely. <laughs> As you were saying that, I was just thinking. I was imagining like a species that sort of swam under the water but then flew at the same time and I was thinking yeah. what does that I'm sure there was something prehistoric that did that well I guess a water bird kind of does that yeah yeah <laughs> but they don't breathe underwater do they Mm-mm. no it's a good point I'm thinking water world just want to be yeah he would definitely know one yes it is yes I get mixed up sometimes that's what happens when you've done one book. Yeah. yeah. Just, the most amazing just, amount of mixed caveat. information. Yeah. I could just blame everything on the fact that I've got a small child. I'm telling you, it's relevant. <laughs> if you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be? Hmm. I suppose you'd want to be something that wasn't that tasty so you didn't get eaten. But um... <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. I would say, like, which fruit or vegetable I like the most. Oh, gosh which do you identify with a berry i think uh oh identify with oh Mm. i mean i don't know i suppose a strawberry Mm. getting a real insight into your brain here you're clearly thinking of the the species like when you're answering that strawberry or or raspberry (laughs) i was just thinking but raspberries go off really quick so well so do strawberries but not as, as quickly i don't know yeah, I don't that's know true. where my logic's going this evening, but that's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're juicy. Yeah. They're tasty. Mm. And they're lovely in the summertime. Refreshing. Mm. Uh, Refreshing. Nice colour. They go with lots of things as well. They go versatile. Mm. Versatile, yeah. Mess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yum, yum, yum. <laughs> okay, I've got two more questions for you. If you can invite one person to dinner, it can be anybody at all from any historical time frame or even a fictional character, who would it be? Oh, gosh. Fictional characters too? Oh, man. I'm I'm a massive Lord of the Rings fan. (laughs) So you weren't in the cinema recently, were you? No, I haven't been. They're they're replaying things in the cinema at the moment, the extended versions. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ten months old. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Yeah. Gosh. Well, fiction. I'm gonna answer multiples. I don't know if that's fair, but I would say fictional. I'd want to talk to Gandalf because I think he's very wise. He's got a lot of knowledge. Um. It's always uplifting. Um. Oh God. In 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 real life, from any time frame. Lewis, I think. Oh gosh! But then you have all the famous philosophers. Why? Why would you? Why would you choose him? Oh, I just I find that his sort of logical way of thinking really mm. resonates with me. Um, and I think he's just got a lot to say of 
a lot of different topics. That's always maybe intrigued me. But I wouldn't, I don't know, it's, it's a close call between him and Tolkien, but I guess they were kind of friends and maybe one of them would give me insight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> make us feel um, smarter. <laughs> but then I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm branching far enough into history thinking about like, I mean, you've got Aristotle, you've got everyone. Oh, would you be into chatting to Darwin? Yeah, I know. Oh. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I'll I, stick with Gandalf for the fictional character and um, I would probably have to draw from a hat from very famous philosophers and, and scientists before. That's exactly it's okay, you can have a really big table or you can have a really yeah. big dinner table. And you yeah, just I'd fill like it to have a very, very big table. That'd be nice. <laughs> Round table, King Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> And our final question is, what's one thing that you wish everybody knew about, I don't know which way to go with this, I don't know whether to go with birds or conservation or just ecology in, in general. It's such a big topic. So let's go with one thing that you wish everybody knew about birds in the UK. I wish they all had heard a widgeon call. What is I'm really intrigued call? now, yeah. yeah. I'm gonna have to it's Google a, this. Pitch little whistle, and it's the cutest thing you've ever heard. Like, at least for me, that is a great cute. answer. <laughs> everyone, like myself and Ash, and everyone now who's gonna listen to yeah, this podcast, and straight away gonna go away and Google. I just the sound of a witching, <laughs> the witching call. Yeah, I can't even try and mimic it, so I don't. <laughs> I'm assuming it's spelled pigeon, but just with a W. Yeah. Gonna check this out now. <laughs> also, <laughs> interestingly, okay. interestingly, have you ever heard a zebra make yes. noise? Yes, I blows know. my mind every I time. I often Google that. Else. It really intrigues me. <laughs> you always think, oh yeah, they're quite. They look a lot like a horse. They should sound like a horse. Nope. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We really appreciate all of your time and also all of the little nuggets of information that we got from you so we hope you've enjoyed it too thank you so much for having me i really appreciate you inviting me on it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you guys and hearing um all the fun chat and um, being part of it if you have loved this podcast as much as we have we would love it if you would share it with everyone that you know also if you could subscribe rate and review the podcast it really helps other people find the podcast so they can listen as well if you would like to follow us on Instagram, we are for the love of weather. On Twitter, we are the number four love of weather. And Lindsay, if people want to find you on social media, where can they find you? I am on Instagram at Lindsay Monster. Um, it's just spelled how you think it does. <laughs> and, um, I believe I'm on Twitter, or is it X now? Um, it's Lindsay7, uh, L-I-N-D-S-E-A-7. Um, thank you and as always we just hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more thanks for listening bye bye